Good morning. It's so good to see all of you here. Let me put my glasses on so I can actually see all of you. Um, this Holy Week, this is Holy Week. Can you believe we're studying end times in the Holy Week? It was kind of astounding to me, too, that God brought it to this week, and it really applied. It was so cool to me. I think the praises and the praise time and everything that we've done this morning, I could just come up here and say amen and go back and sit down because you basically get it. And I may just be preaching to the choir today because I think you understand what we're studying right now. I feel so blessed to be here this morning with all of you. My name is Vanita Jones, and I'm on the teaching team for Women in the Word. But I feel blessed to be here today because this is the Holy Week, and as Christians, this is what defines us as Christians. This very week defines us as disciples of Christ. And if you remember, last week, Shelley told us that we all have a calling to be disciples for Jesus. And so this week defines us as Christians. Now, I hope, like me, you've enjoyed studying Mark. I like Mark. You know, he's my kind of guy. You get the whole story in just a few little bits and pieces, and you get the whole thing. You have the whole idea. I like to call him a headliner. You know, you can read one chapter of Mark, and you get three or four healings from big things like demons and and blindness and that kind of stuff. They'll, in the same day, go feed 5,000 people, and then the next thing you know, they're all walking on water. This guy can pack it all into one chapter. That's what I loved about him. I like to laugh about the headliner part. My husband and I, we always say we could work for a newspaper because he loves details. I don't. And so we could write, he could write all the articles, I could write the headlines, because when we read the newspaper on Sunday morning, he reads it in about two and a half, three hours. It takes me about 10 minutes. But we kind of have the same idea when we get to the end of it. So I think Mark is a lot like me and that he likes action, but he likes it quick and he doesn't want all the details. And you just get the story. But you know, Mark 13 was just a little bit different in that we didn't have any healings. There weren't any mass feedings of 5,000 people at a time. And there wasn't any walking on water. It was all about Jesus unveiling the future for his disciples. And in that, unveiling a future for us in the same breath. Now this chapter, if not taken in little pieces at a time, it's almost like drinking from a fire hydrant. And I purposely didn't have you read the entire chapter at one time like I usually do. Because the first time I read this chapter, I had a look on my face, kind of like my dog Phoenix. We have a black lab. That she gets on her face when I talk to her. It's like that. <laughs> now, my husband has told me, Vanita, when you talk to the dogs, you need to use single word commands. That's all they understand. But when Cameron's not around, I speak in like short stories and paragraphs to my dog, and that's what she does to me. It's like she's listening carefully, intently. She's trying to find those five words in all those words. Those five words are ball. Bird, because she's a retriever, play, treat, and food. And in our house, we have to spell all those words because she knows those words. And now we can spell food and ball, and she knows what we're saying. <laughs> so she is a brilliant, brilliant dog. Now, I also have another dog that if I don't give her equal time, this is Coco. She doesn't photograph well, so I couldn't use her. She's just a big ball of curls and really has no purpose except to make us laugh all day long. But anyway, that's the look I had on my face, the one that Phoenix had, minus the big ears and the whiskers, when I read this for the first time. 
because it is some crazy stuff. You know, I think the disciples probably had that same look on their face after they heard what he had to say about the temple in in verse 2. Now, what I want to do today is we're going to start at the very beginning. We're going to break this down into little pieces, and we're going to try to eat this elephant one bite at a time. So maybe when we leave here today, we can actually understand what he's trying to tell us. And we can take something with us out of these prophecies that we can apply as we walk out this door and use in our life right now. Because otherwise, it just seems like a bunch of words that don't apply to us. But it really does. Now, let's start it. I want you to open your Bibles. Open up to Mark 13. And now, as you're going there, I want you to remember that last week when Shelley taught, we were in the temple. Jesus was there, and the Sadducees, and remember this, the Pharisees are all trying to trip him up. Trying to make him say the wrong thing. Give him just the right nugget so they can crucify this guy. And... Now, we've, what I've read is we're probably kind of towards the end of that day, maybe the end of Tuesday, which that was Tuesday in the Holy Week, and they're leaving the temple. They've had a long day there of teaching, and they're going to head up to the Mount of Olives and have some quiet time. And as they walk out the first part, I walk out of the temple, this is what they say. Read with me in 13. It says, as he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And in verse 2, he says, replies to them, do you see all these great buildings? He says, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It was kind of like the depressing moment of the day, wasn't it? They were probably on a little high. They'd done all this teaching, and he just did this wah-wah moment. Because they were looking at this magnificent sight, And this temple was magnificent. This thing, this temple, all its courts, all its outer buildings, it covered about one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. One-sixth, that's like, it was like equaling 35, the surface area with 35 football fields. It's huge. And then he's talking about these stones that aren't going to be left on top of each other. Those stones were 25 cubits long. They were eight cubits high and 12 cubits wide. Now, that doesn't mean much, but when you hear that a cubit is roughly 18 inches and you do the math, that means that every stone in that temple was 40 feet long. It was 12 feet high and 18 feet wide. They were massive. And Jesus is telling these guys, there's not going to be one of those stones left on another. Not one. It's going to be completely destroyed. This had to seem impossible to these disciples. Completely impossible, but you know, this very thing happens. This very thing happens when in 70 AD, Jesus, or God brings judgment on rebellious Israel, and the Romans that have been oppressing them for so many years actually destroy the temple. So it's going to happen. Now let's read on. Let's read Mark 13, 3 through 4. To drop your eyes, it says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When these things will happen and what will be the signs that they are about to be fulfilled? Okay, now they've left the temple. Jesus just dropped the lead balloon. And they're walking across the Kidron Valley up to to the Mount of Olives. Just imagine that walk after he says this. That would be a little awkward, maybe a little quiet. Some murmuring between the disciples and confused looks like, what is this guy talking about? I mean, can you see this? How's that possibly going to happen? To the point that when they get to the Mount of Olives, the four big ones, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they pull Jesus aside and they say, tell us these things. When is it going to happen? And what's it going to look like right before this is fulfilled? 
And now, if you recall, let's go, let's go back and studying prophecy. We studied prophecy last spring when we did Isaiah, if anybody remembers that. And then we did it again last fall in Daniel, if you remember that. We studied prophecy. And one of the things we learned when we were studying prophecy is that prophecy, most of it has an immediate fulfillment, kind of a now and not yet fulfillment. Meaning that there can be a fulfillment that is within your very near future. And then there can be a fulfillment that comes way, way into the future. But there's also prophecy that have a now and a not yet fulfillment. And that's kind of what we're going to be seeing today. The beauty of living in the age that we live in is that we have this. And we're able to read what prophecies have already been fulfilled and because we're able to see what prophecy has been fulfilled, in fact, in the last couple of weeks, we've watched how Jesus fulfilled prophecy as he came into Jerusalem, and he, they waved palm branches, and they put their cloaks down, and they sang Hosanna. That was all talked about in the Old Testament. We are able to trust that any of these prophecies that we have not seen fulfilled yet, in their due time, these prophecies will be fulfilled. We have that luxury of seeing that now the disciples on the other hand they were working with limited information okay only what they could see and what the time they had been with jesus they were able to look at and say what they thought was that this event that he was talking about was an event that would lead up to the end of their present age okay that would be the temple would be destroyed it would usher in the new earthly kingdom and jesus was going to be their king on earth they were hoping for this new king that would finally end all the oppression and all the persecution that they were suffering at the hands of the Romans right there on earth. So Jesus' response that comes in verses 5 through 37, though relevant to the disciples of that time, is also very relevant for us also. Because, see, we live in similar conditions, and we have faced similar conditions as the older disciples, and, and we are, too, waiting for the coming of Christ. For our Savior to return. So these verses are filled with prophecy, some pertaining to the current day stuff at, at their time, and some pertaining to us and our future. So we're going to spend the next few minutes actually unpacking these prophecies and see how they re- pertain to us today. Okay? Now, I'm sure as you can tell from my resounding, in the questions, a resounding theme for me in all of this was watch. He was telling us to watch. And that caused me to pause for a few minutes and to think about, what does it mean? You know, he's telling me to beware, be on guard, take heed, all these things. And in fact, the last word in the NIV translation is watch. And, and I, I, what does this mean? What does it mean for little old Vanita and little old Fort to actually watch for the return of Jesus? Does it mean I stick my face on the window and stare at the, at the sky and just watch to see what's going to happen? See, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he has a lot more to watch than that. The first warning comes to us to watch, and it's in verses 5 through 6. If you'll read with me, it says, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. He's telling the disciples and warning them to watch with discernment. He says to watch with the sermon because many are going to come trying to be, claim to be me. They're going to claim to be your Savior, to be your Messiah. And then we read again, if you'll drop your eyes down to verses 21 through 23, it says, Look at that time, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. I like how he says, if that were possible. <laughs> it's almost like he went, ha, if that were possible. But I think he's wanting them to be ready for these people that are going to come claiming to be their savior. You know, we're confronted with ideas every single day, theories and ideas about new spiritual things. And, and, and we have to sift through this information with discerning minds. We're confronted with them in magazines, self-help books, on talk shows, even in our college courses and in the pews of some churches. There are ideas presented, ladies, that just don't line up with the word of God at all. And we take in this information every day. Some of it is so important to us as disciples of Christ. And quite frankly, some of it is just a waste of time and energy. It's even dangerous to us in our lives. Jesus is warning us, like he was the early disciples, to watch with discernment as we sift through all this information and we're to carefully examine how it lines up with the greatest self-help book ever written right here, the Word of God. I think Ted said it perfectly one time, and this has stuck with me. It was a couple years ago in a sermon. He said, um, when, we're, when we're at this point where we have to, to understand, is this really from God or not? Just simply ask one question. What saith ye about Jesus? I mean, there it is. It's one simple question. And I can't tell you how many times I've used that in the last two years. What does that say about Jesus? Because, see, if it doesn't line up with what it says about Jesus then it's not from God. What the Bible says, it's not from God. You know, I have this, this thing that happened to me recently, and it kind of helped me understand weeding out unimportant information and, and disregarding unimportant things. I, I drive a 10-year-old Suburban, and it sucks gas. You can almost hear it coming out of the gas tank. But for years, I've had to drive lots of kids, lots of places, and recently that's kind of dropped off. I only have a couple children at home still. And my husband and I decided to be prudent and save our money, and he'd let me drive his zippy little Acura, and he would drive the Suburban and let it stay parked at the office all day. So the first day I get in the Acura, I pull out, and I'm driving off, feeling pretty sporty, actually, and because I've been in the Suburban all my life. I'm pulling out, driving down the dirt. I hadn't gotten 30, 30 feet from the house, and I hear, ding. Like, oh, no. So I look down, and it says, check tire pressure. Oh. I must have gone over a nail or something, so I pull over, kick the tires, looking around, nothing. Everything looks great. So I hit disregard, and I drive off. About 50 feet later, ting, check tire pressure. Oh, this is bad. So I'm thinking, I better go to discount tire. We got these tires and them checks. So I pull in there and say, there's something wrong with my tires. So the guys check all my tires. They said, ma'am, your tires are fine. You can just, those systems are kind of sensitive. You can just disregard that. You know, the weather changing and stuff can cause it to be a little, okay. So I know now, I don't have to bother with that disregard. So I pull out, ding, check tire pressure. <sighs> disregard. I know. So I get 25 feet more down the road and I hear, ding. I'm like, oh, seriously. It says, check fuel cap. I'm like, oh my goodness. So now I'm not just scared. Now I'm annoyed. So I called my husband and I said, listen, I have only been in this car about 15 minutes and I have about 15 warnings I need to watch. Is this important? And he goes, oh, you know, that system is really sensitive. Heard that before. I get it. And he said, you can disregard most of those messages. And I'm like, okay. 
I'm like, this is so crazy. So I'm driving along, and, and he proceeded to tell me about the rest of his day and what he had going on. Then he threw in there, just kind of in the side. He said, oh, by the way, we probably, which means me, we probably ought to get an appointment to get those brakes checked. Because they're really getting bad. In fact, they're so bad that I've been driving with the manual transmission so that I don't have to use the brakes so much. And then he quickly says, love you, gotta run, bye, click. I'm there like scratching my head, I'm going, okay, this car tings when I have non-existent tire suppressors because the weather's different today. And I get ting when I have to tighten the fuel cap that's non-life-threatening. And it tings when it's low on fuel and if I just drop my eye about a half inch, I know that because it's got a fuel gauge. But it doesn't ting when my brakes are bad enough that I should get them fixed and I should use the manual transmission until I get them fixed? Well, I would expect the siren and lights when it hits that point to go off and something on the dashboard to come up and say, what saith Midas about your brakes? Get them checked, lady, they're bad. That's important information. That's what we need to know what's important and what's not important. Because seriously, ladies, we are going to be confronted with information every single day. Things like, ting, you deserve to be happy. Heard that one before, haven't you? Ting, there are so many paths to eternal life. And it goes on and on and on. All you got to do is turn on one talk show and you're going to have a whole list of these tings going off in your head. We have got to sift through this with discernment. And the only way we can do that is with the Holy Spirit. So we have to pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us as we study the Word of God so that we know when to be checking for deception. Because, ladies, if whatever you're listening to, whatever it is, I I even heard one that if you speak something up to the universe, it vibrates and comes back to you. People bought books and believe that. That is crazy. See, if this doesn't say, if what you're reading doesn't say that Jesus is God and fully man, and it doesn't talk about his deity, his virgin birth, his, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection from the dead, then, ladies, there should be sirens and lights going off around you, and there should be this warning sign on the dashboard of your brain saying, check for deception, because it's there. We have to re- pray up and read up. So that the Holy Spirit will guide us and we'll know what is from God and what isn't from God. Look at your verse sheet in 1 Corinthians 2.12. It says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. And 1 John 4.2-3 says it, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. What saith you about Jesus? I mean, it's right there. Now, the next warning we come across is in verses 7 through 8, and we see it again in verses 12 through 13. So if you drop your eyes to verse 7, it says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places and famine. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. And then again, down in verses 12 and 13, it says, Brother will be a brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and will have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
Jesus was telling the disciples he wanted them to watch with confidence. To be confident and not misinterpret these events that they see unfolding around them as something that the end of time is is right at hand. Because, see, there have been falls of nations. There have been falls of kingdoms. There have been wars. There have been famine, family betrayal, rebellion, hatred against men. It's not unique to our time. It's not unique to the disciples' time back when they were with Jesus. And it, it wasn't unique until right after the fall. We see, we see it back there where Cain killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of him. So it's not unique, and it doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. He's just saying that these things are all part of my greater purpose, and they're not out of my gaze or my control. So expect these things to happen. And each generation will have its own natural disasters. We can prove that this last week, huh? And each generation will have its, uh, all these events, and we can rest assured that they're all in God's plan, And they all have a purpose, and they're leading us towards that end of time when Christ is coming back. Now, knowing that God is in perfect, his plan is perfect, helps know that. And that is only done by reading this and letting him show how perfect it is in your own life and living it out every day. And then we know that nothing is out of his gaze, nothing is out of his control. And we can watch with confidence, knowing that what is folding around us is all part of his plan. And that he was, he is right now, and he always will be in control of what's going on. Now let's read on in verse 9 through 11 and verse 13. It says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of men, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the, and, the gospel, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. And then verse 13 again, it says, All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now the third way we learn to watch is found in verse 10. And it's where Jesus reminds the disciples of the most important job he's given them. He's reminded them that they're to share the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the whole world. And I had you look that up on your questions. It was Acts 1, 7 through 8. And it's, he says to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea, all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now he's reminding them to watch for opportunities. He wants you to look for opportunities to share the gospel. But now he doesn't promise us in the same breath that it's going to be well received. And he doesn't promise us that everybody's going to love to hear it, does he? He just says we're supposed to share his gospel with the rest of the world. Now your end of the earth may be your little family where someone within your family needs to hear about Jesus. Your end of the earth may be your job or someone in your school. Or it may be in Tanzania or Indonesia or wherever that is. Pray that God will show you those opportunities to share the gospel. Now, in these verses, we found the other way that Jesus wanted us to watch, and that was to watch with expectation. He wants us to watch expecting for the Holy Spirit to show up within us and to give us the words that we need at the right time, the right place, so we can speak with boldness and with no fear. Now, that promise is the same for us today as disciples of Jesus today. We, too, can be assured that the Holy Spirit will enable us whenever we're opposed or persecuted because of his name. Now, we saw the real reason in verse 13. That's why I reread it, why we were 
we could expect to be persecuted. And it says the, that all men will hate you because of me. See, if we identify with Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, we can expect to be treated the way he was treated. And, and it can happen. See, he was, he was hated back then, and he's still hated by some today. I think it's really interesting how you could be in, in working, associated with all kinds of crazy spiritual ideas, like the vibration thing I was telling you about, or these crazy religions, and nobody opposes you. In fact, they may even think that you're a brilliant, tolerant mind because you have all these wonderful ideas. But the minute you say the name Jesus and you try to share the gospel with them, it is like a lead balloon is dropped. Everybody, someone's offended, someone's opposed, and they begin to persecute you, oppose you because of it. See, we're not supposed to stop sharing it because of that. He tells us, that's my greatest priority. Now, as we move on, I want to mention... The second part of 13 kind of was disturbing to me. It almost sounded like we're saved by our works. And so I did some extra reading on that. And what I found was this one common idea that came from all of it was that it was interpreted to mean that a person is saved by grace through faith. And by that, we will endure to the end and experience the consummation of our salvation and the blessings that come with our salvation. That this perseverance and this standing firm are just outward signs of our salvation. It's not the basis. It just proves our salvation, that we can stand firm to the end, okay? We know this because we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it, is, it says on your first sheet, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. See, we're not saved by our works, we're saved by faith. Now, I want to move on. We're going to read um, verses 14 through 27 and find out the next way that Jesus is asking his disciples to watch. If you'll drop your eyes to 14, it says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roofs of house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. Never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect. If that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. <sighs> wow, that's some pretty crazy stuff, isn't it? Well, it seems like the first nine verses of this chapter in Mark 13, the first nine verses of this portion of Scripture, were limited, some interpreted they were limited to the events leading up to the chaotic years of the fall of Jerusalem. That would put it around 66 to 70 A.D., some in there. Now, other interpretations actually relate this to the time during the Great Tribulation, after the rapture and before the second coming of Christ. But there's yet another interpretation 
which by the way is the one that I basically wrapped my arms around and accepted, was that these details suggest that both these events, both the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and then the end times, the great tribulation, are both in view here. This is one of those prophecies that actually has one of those now and the not yet fulfillments to it, okay? Now, in verse 14, the prophecy that talks about the abomination that causes desolation, we actually heard about this back in Daniel a couple times, once in Daniel 9, once in Daniel 11. And the word um, abomination, it denotes a pagan idolatry and all of its detestable practices, and it is scary stuff if you ever want to read into that. Um, The phrase abomination that causes desolation, it actually means the presence of an idolatrous person or an object in the temple that causes a temple to be abandoned and to be left desolate. So something happens within the temple. Now, back in Daniel 9 and 11, they speak of this very thing. And we saw that happen in 167 B.C., That means this particular prophecy had a been-there-done-that fulfillment. It has the now and the near-future fulfillment, and then there's a distant, far-not-yet fulfillment of this. Um, If you remember back in 1131-32, I've got it on your verse sheet. I want you to follow along. It said, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Historically, the first fulfillment of this in Daniel, this prophecy that's given in Daniel, is in 167 B.C., like I mentioned. It was by a Syrian ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he came into the uh, the temple. He erected this altar over the offering of, the uh, altar of burnt offerings, and he dedicated this by putting a pig on it and sacrificing it, dedicating it to the pagan Greek god Zeus. I mean, enough said there, right? He pretty much desecrated the... It was abomination to the temple. Now, Jesus' use of the abomination that causes desolation in Mark 13, 14 refers to yet another fulfillment, and that's going to happen in 70 AD. This was fulfilled when Jewish zealots murdered the high priest that was in charge at the time, and they put their own high priest in... And along with him came these appalling, detestable practices. And it caused the Jewish Christians to flee the temple and flee the city. And it left the temple desolate. But now these two events, both 167 B.C. and 70 A.D., these foreshadow yet a not yet fulfillment that will happen. And that will be, we looked it up in our questions, that's that's when the Antichrist, the lawless man, will stand in the temple where he doesn't belong, And he will declare himself to be God. And that event will usher in the second half of the seven years of tribulation, the seven years after the rapture, and it will lead up to the second coming of Christ. Clear as mud? (laughs) Okay. um, This was all kind of scary stuff, I thought. It just didn't really want to read it. I thought, why do we have to read this? But, you know... I thought we could find hope in some of this because he threw a few verses in there that kind of gave me hope. In verse 23, he said, be on, says, so be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. He's let us in on the scoop. He's let us in on the story. We know what to expect. And verse 26, it says, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I mean, that speaks for itself. 
And verse 27, it says, And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the heavens. See, he was telling the disciples to watch with hope. Because even with the knowledge of what was about to come, in their future, the distant future, whatever it is for them or us, he wanted them and us to know as well that it's all in his control. And the good news is he's coming back to take us home with him. He's going to gather us and take us to eternity where we're going to live forever with our precious Savior. Ladies, this is our great hope. This is what we have to hang on to. This, is, this should permeate every area of your life. It should ooze from everything you do, everything you say, everything you do. People should look to you because they see hope. And not only see hope, they should know where that hope comes from. They should know that your hope comes from Jesus Christ. It's got to be evident. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, we've got to go out into the world with our hope, and we've got to live like we have the hope. We've just got to be all over us. Okay, we're going to read on to the end of Mark 13. We're going to start at verse 28. It says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs turn tender and, it leaves, and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It, it's like a man who goes away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or in the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, Jesus skipped, and I think purposely, right over that when question that they first asked. And he went right on to their second question, and that's what we've been addressing. But now he's gone back, and he's telling them about the when part of it. And... He's saying that that same question, and we hear it, every, we still hear it now, don't we? I mean, you know that in the, like last year, what wasn't it predicted twice the world was going to end? I mean, there were huge pages in the newspaper taking about what was going to happen and all this. In fact, I've heard that it's supposed to end in December, shortly before Christmas this year. Now, I can bet, like you and me, we're going to buy our Christmas gifts, aren't we? Because we know that Jesus isn't telling us it's going to end in December. He specifically gives us no, per, no predicted time, but he urges us one thing there. He urges us to watch with vigilance. He says to watch with vigilance and to stay awake. I looked up the word vigilant. It had all these definitions like you would expect, but I went back to an older, Bible, or older dictionary, which I love to do, and it said this one thing. It said, it's keeping awake when sleep is customary. Now, I'm pretty sure they probably meant sleep, literally, but I think it's safe to say that figuratively we live in a world that is asleep. I mean, it's asleep to the things of God. It's asleep to the Word of God. It's asleep to the power and saving power of Jesus Christ. And we're being commanded to stay awake, to be vigilant and awake during these times. We're to live in such a way that whether he comes back at night or comes back during the day, that we're ready for his return. You know, in 2 Peter on your verse sheet, 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14 says this. But in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. It's kind of that, look busy, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You see, we don't know the exact time at all because he doesn't want us to know that. But we do know with complete confidence he is coming back because this entire book leads us up to that. And it talks about it all the way through. So we should spend more time getting to know the one that's actually going to come back and take us to live with him forever than worrying about when he's going to do it. I think that's more important. I I read a quote, quote by a man named David Jeremiah, and it said this. Rather than spending all your time reading magazines and books trying to figure out the nuances of the future, maybe you should spend as much time getting to know him, Big H, better. Then when the future becomes the present, you will be enjoying a wondrously close relationship with Almighty God, and you can be walking with the Lord Jesus in strength no matter what's happening. He's saying, spend some time in the Word and getting to know the character of God and getting to know his son and falling in love with Jesus. Because then we can focus on Jesus' face and we don't have to look at all this crazy, crazy stuff that's going on around us. Because when we do that and we know the character of God, then we don't have to worry about when anymore, do we? Because we know the character of the one that's got the when, where, how, and the what in his hands. And we know that he can definitely handle it without us. So get to know him and trust him. This chapter was a brainful of information for me. It, in fact, there were times that it was kind of depressing. It was kind of scary. It was kind of confusing. But I found encouragements all throughout it. I saw that in verse 7 when it said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. We can be encouraged that all this stuff, these tornadoes, all these wars, everything is in his control. They're all part of his great purpose. In verse 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. We can be encouraged that God is going to give us the Holy Spirit to speak for us in these times when we are not sure what's going on around us and we're being opposed or persecuted. In verse 13, all men will hate you because of me, but he, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We can be encouraged that when we, through faith, stand firm and persevere, we'll be blessed by God. And in verse 27, it says, And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. We can be encouraged that he is coming back to take us home with him. And that is our great hope. But last but not least, in verse 31, it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we believe that as women that come to women in the word, don't we? When everything around us becomes sinking sand and falls away from us, and we know that can happen in a heartbeat, this word never changes and it never passes away. Because you see, we face, as mere humans, we face the same future that all humans face. I mean, it's not except that we're going to be with Jesus. We face all this crazy stuff that's going around us. But as disciples of Jesus... We can face our future and we can watch with discernment. We can watch with confidence and expectation. We can watch for opportunities to share his gospel, watch with hope and watch with vigilance. But most importantly, we can watch and be encouraged because we have the hope of the world inside us. And we know with complete confidence what that means for our future. 
Now, my NIV Bible <clears throat> entitles Mark 13, The Signs of the Ends of the Ages, which I thought was a lot of words and kind of scary. And I want to call it The Signs of the New Beginning Times. I think it's more that glass is half full as opposed to the glass is half empty. Because I want to watch for Christ's triumphant return, and I want to watch with great anticipation. Kind of like when my dog Phoenix actually hears the word treat. That's what it looks like. You say the word treat, and her ears perk up, and her tongue hangs out. Minus the big tongue, and the ears, and the whiskers. I want to watch, and I want to show all over my face, and in everything I say, and everything I do, that I have the hope of Jesus within me. You said, I think Lynn said it best a couple weeks back when she said this in Mark 10. She said, keep your eyes fixed on your heavenly destination with Christ and let your choices be the proof of your faith and hope. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just uh, thank you for these women. I thank you that they want to be in your word and they know that your word will never pass away. Father, I pray that you give us faces that show your hope that you give us actions and words that show that we, you are our great hope and that we are able to take it with boldness out into this world. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.